You're listening to the New Life Podcast. We're one church in multiple locations based out of Aberdeen, South Dakota. We hope this message helps the gospel come alive for you and gives you an opportunity to encounter Jesus in a whole new way. For more info on New Life, you can check out our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Let's get ready to listen to today's message. All right, well, we are in a series called Dear Church, and today it is wrapping up. We've been looking at the seven churches in the book of Revelation, dun, 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 right? And we have finally come to the last one, right? We have come to the church of Laodicea. This sermon is called The End of the Road, right? We have come to the end of the road in this series, and it's the end of the road is not a pretty one. Okay, if you remember last week or the, the, the following weeks, we see Jesus talking to these angels and sending these messengers uh, to the churches uh, all throughout Asia Minor. Some of them are good, some of them are bad, right? Some of them are like, hey, you've done this wrong uh, and you've done this right, so, so do this and then you're going to reap a reward, right? Every church, to him who overcomes, to him who conquers, I have a reward for you and that reward every single time is who? It's Christ. He's constantly pointing people back to himself. He's constantly critiquing. How many of you know that your spouse isn't perfect? How many of you know you're not perfect? How many of you know me, even as a pastor, I'm not perfect, right? We're not perfect people. And sometimes in our life, Jesus has to come in and say, Micah, you need to do this differently. You're doing this well, but over here, you're not loving your wife like you should. And so you need to fix those things. Jesus is doing that with his church. And last week, for the first time, We see Jesus coming to a church, the church of Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love, and he has nothing bad to say about them at all. And I love reading through it. I love even last week preaching on it. I got to preach to downtown. I just had an awesome time sharing this message about people who were walking the walk. They were following Jesus with everything that they had. They laid it all on the line. They were persecuted. They were pushed out of society. They didn't go with the trends that everybody else went with. And so uh, Jesus had nothing bad to say about them. But as we come to the climax of the letters, as we come to the end of the road, as we come to the church of Laodicea, we're going to see the exact opposite. How many of you like ending on a high note? You like at the end of the game when it's close, you like seeing your team make the winning shot. When you turn on the TV to see the score of the Wings game, you want to see that they have won, right? You want to end on a good note. These letters do not do that. The end of the road here takes us to a church where unlike Philadelphia, where nothing bad is said about them, when we get to Laodicea, there is nothing good. There is nothing good good said about them at all. Jesus just rips them a new one. This is how the letters end. It doesn't end on a high note. It ends on a very low note. So open your Bible to Revelation chapter three. We're gonna start in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church. This is how Jesus chooses to end the letters to the church. When every church reads through the seven letters that has been shared amongst the different churches. This is the one that ends them all. And I think the reason why is because the sin Jesus is dealing with in this text is the sin that's easiest for human beings to slip back into. It's the sin where everything looks good on the outside, but when you look at what's going on on the inside, you realize the two stories don't align. You're not actually following the ways of the master. You're not actually following the ways of Jesus. Instead, what you've done is you've slipped into this pattern where you've chased after the comforts of this life. See, here's the first point that I want to share with you. Comfort and Christ clash. Write that down. Comfort and Christ, they clash. Jesus says to them, I know your works, that you're neither hot nor cold. I'd rather have you be one of the other. Because you're lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Here's the thing you need to know about Laodicea. We always give you some awesome backstories about these, these towns to help you understand the text more. Laodicea was one of three cities. And Laodicea, it was Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae. Right? Laodicea is mentioned a few times in the book of Colossians. It's spoken of highly. In fact, it actually says that Paul wrote a letter Paul, the guy who writes scripture, Paul writes a letter to Laodicea and actually sends it to him. He takes his messengers and he sends them to this city because he loves them, because he did ministry there, because there were people just like you and me who were believers. They responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This awesome message that, that God himself came down, became like me, lived a perfect life and died for my sins because, hate to break it to you, I ain't perfect. And I needed Jesus to save me. They were, they were raptured by this message. They loved it. They grabbed hold of it. And they were like, I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what. They had this relationship with Paul that he had with so many other cities. And what we see happening in Laodicea is there was something that was going on that over the years, over the 10, 20, 30 years between the time Paul wrote his first letter to Laodicea, in Revelation, something happened to where now they were no longer a people that were passionate for the things of God, but they had backslidden. Now they were lukewarm and they were, Jesus was literally threatening them with a gross, I mean, what a gross thing to say. Like, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Like, spitting's gross. I know, I do it a lot. But like, like spitting's a gross thing. Jesus is going to do this with them. He's going to spit them out. But what was going on in Laodicea? Laodicea was a powerful city. You've heard Pastor Rod talk about before how when, when a town had a banking system in it, people came from all around and they used it. And so Laodicea was no different. It had a banking, a banking structure there and so people came. There was a lot of money and where there's a lot of money, there's a lot of power. 
right? And where there's a lot of power, oftentimes, almost all of the time, there's a lot of sin. Laodicea was a prideful people. In fact, one time in their history, early on in like 17 AD or something, there was an earthquake that hit their city and the surrounding areas, and it completely leveled it. Every building destroyed. And Rome was going around handing out some some government funds to help the people rebuild their homes, rebuild their city centers. And Laodicea had so much money, they said, no, 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 Rome, we don't need your help. They were like Midwestern people, right? With just lots of pride in your community. When the government tries to help, you're like, hold on, hold on, hold on. I would rather die, right, than take a government handout. And so we're gonna build this city ourselves. They took pride in their community. I love going downtown to the market. It's like this new little coffee shop place, right? And and I bought this hat that says 605. And the reason I bought it is because I'm like, that's my town, right? Like, I take pride in my community. You know, this is Aberdeen, right? We're the same way. We take pride in our community. We take pride in our buildings and in our structures, right? These people were super hip and cool, right? They were on the cutting technology of fashion and clothes. They had, they had literally the black sheep, okay? I don't know how this happened, but, but they had wool that was black, and so they were world-renowned for having these certain types of clothes, clothes that looked a certain way because the fabric was dyed black, Right? So they had a lot of wealth coming in through their fashion industry. They had a lot of people coming through their doors. Right? They, were, they were known medically throughout the whole world for having this ointment that you would put on your eyes. Right? They were the cutting, cutting edge of technology. And they had this ointment they put on their eyes that would help uh, heal them as the, as the eye aged. I don't know what happened to that these days, but apparently they had it back then. Okay? They just had a good salesman. That's really what it was. It was probably snake oil or something like that. Okay? But like these people were very successful. They were very successful. And Jesus does something that is, that is so interesting. And it, he just, it's like he just, he's poking them in the eye, right? He's just annoying them. He's calling out their pride. The one thing that's unique about Laodicea, that's different from the other cities, is it didn't have for itself a water source. Hierapolis was known for having some hot springs, Right, water that would bubble up and it was warm to the touch. And so it was used for medicinal purposes. People would come from all over the empire to Hierapolis to, to bathe in the warm waters because they believed it had these healing qualities in them. When you looked at Colossae, they had these rivers that would go through the city that were cold and delicious to drink. It would be like the difference between web water and Aberdeen water. Right, like if you're looking to buy a home right now and you see the word web and you're not from Aberdeen, here's the deal, that's a big green flag. You want that, right? It ups the value of your home double. I mean, I don't know what it is, but like it, your value increases when you have web water. Okay, Colossae had the web water, but Laodicea, because of where it was positioned, it had no water. It had a little bit, but it was just this warm water that when you would, when you would drink it, it was just kind of disgusting and chemically, and, and, and some of you were like, yeah, that's the water from my tap, right? But like, it, it made you nauseous. It would make you nauseous and almost lightheaded, and you couldn't drink the Laodicean water. And so what Laodicea did, because they're a proud, successful uh, a people, they thought, well, how can we get their water so Laodicea spent all sorts of money building a system up to Hierapolis where the, the hot spring water would trickle down and flow because they're like, if we can get that water here, then we're gonna have the warm medicinal water that, that Hierapolis has. 
And they, they spent this money on, on trade deals with Colossae to where they could send, you know, and somehow get that water from Colossae back to Laodicea. And here's what they discovered, this proud, successful people who spent all this money on a system to get the water from there to here. They realized that by the time the water had traveled through the whole system and it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. By the time the cold water that was delicious to drink and good for, for sustaining life, by the time that water from Colossae got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And Jesus says, you're just like, these, you're just like this city. You're neither hot nor cold. I would rather have you be hot and cold. Oftentimes we're like, hot and cold, that's the temperature of the believer. If you're hot, you're really on fire for Christ. If you're cold, that means you're not even following. No, 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 that's not what's going on here. Jesus is saying, hot is good, cold is good. You are meant to be a people who brings medical help to those around. Jesus is the great physician, and when Jesus works through you, there's medicinal value, there's spiritual value that you bring to the table. When, when, when you're a believer in Jesus, it's like you're that cool water that when someone comes and they're thirsty and their mouth is dry because the situations in life have let them down, and maybe they're going through a divorce, or maybe there's something happening in their family where they got a bad medical report, and they don't know what to do next, and they just need some life. When they come to you, they want to taste that good water. Jesus is saying, that's what the church is supposed to be. But you, Laodicea, you've been compromised. You've become lukewarm. So instead of being the value that I've created you to be, instead of being a light to the world where now you can go out and minister to people, Instead of bringing healing, instead of bringing life, you're nothing more than lukewarm water that I'm gonna spit out. And Jesus tells us what the problem is. What's their problem? He says, for you say in verse 17, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Think about the churches we've talked to about at this point. Every single church has faced persecution, even the ones that weren't doing it the best. I shared this with downtown last week. I, I, shared, I, I said to them, I was like, you know, Christianity is a suffering movement. Wherever you see it popping up, guess what? There's suffering that happens. There's something inside of Christianity that inherently makes you grind gears with the culture around you to where people look at you and they say, there's something different about that guy and I don't like it. They're not like me. What people on the outside do with Christianity, what they did with Jesus when they hung him on the tree is they said, Jesus, you're not like me. You're one of those people. And so I'm gonna come over here and because I'm better than you, I'm, going to, I'm gonna kill you. Christianity comes to be counter to culture. So when people look at us, they see someone who's not living life the same way that they are. They're not engaging in culture the same way that they are. They're not going to those parties on Friday nights and getting hammered and then waking up puking in the toilet the next morning. They're not like everybody else. There's something different about them. And when people see it, people don't like different and they, they separate themselves from those that are different from them. What they do in their mind is they create a hierarchy that says, I'm over here, you're over there. I'm better than you because you don't do what I do. 
Jesus came to blow up comfort. This church was a comfortable church. They were prosperous. They were wealthy. They had their home here in Aberdeen, and then they had that lake house with the boat. They got the nice car with whose air conditioning works. How many of you glad uh, that your air conditioning works? My wife's is like slowly going out. God help her, right? But like you have the comfort. <laughs> I can't give her my truck because then I wouldn't have air conditioning, right? <laughs> but no, like what Jesus is confronting here is Christians who have become comfortable with culture. Christians who have become comfortable because culture doesn't look at them and see somebody who's different. They see somebody who's just like them. They just have some extra beliefs. Oh, you believe Jesus is God? That's cool. You still coming to the party Friday night? You believe that God is triune? I don't even know what that means. It seems kind of weird. But like, are you still gonna be there this weekend when the guys get together? Are you gonna go out and do that thing that you know you probably shouldn't do? Are you gonna live in a way that you know you probably shouldn't live when you read the scriptures? You're thinking, man, what am am I doing here? Here's what happened with Laodicea. They got comfortable. They got comfortable with their success. They got comfortable with their money. They got comfortable with their lives. They had the cars, the homes, the family. They had it. And Jesus is saying, look, there's nothing wrong with cars. Nothing wrong with homes. But your heart, your heart has moved on from me. You need nothing. Underline those in your Bible. The people got to a point where they looked at Jesus and they said to him, I don't need you anymore. I needed you back then because the message sounded good because I was going through something in my life and Jesus, when I heard your gospel, it sparked something inside of me and I chose to follow you. But as time goes along, I've realized I no longer need you. You've heard Rodney and Pastor Greg talk over and over about how the younger generations are slowly moving away from the things of God. The reason they're moving away from the the things of God is because they're realizing, I don't need Jesus. And it's a subtle shift that happens in little, minute ways where our heart begins to connect with the things of this world, the comforts that we have earned We get so attached to them that we become Laodicea. The second point I want to share with you is beware the I'm good mentality. Beware the I'm good mentality. What does it mean when I say I'm good? Right? It's like when you go, you go to the millstone and your coffee's half full and the waitress comes around to to fill you up and you're like, nah, I'm good. I don't need that. Right? It's when you it's when you're going through the line of McDonald's, as I so often do, like, God help us. I really don't need that, okay, right? And just like you're going through the line at McDonald's and you're talking to the sweet lady on the other line, right, and she's getting your order and you think you're done and she's like, well, hey, do you want to add another Big Mac to it? And you're like, no, I already have two and a large soda, so I'm good, right? I don't need that, right? And you feel like you've taken some sort of moral stand because you're not gonna stuff your face with that extra Big Mac, right? But when you say I'm good, it means... Thank you for what you're offering me, but I don't need it. I don't need your help. I don't need a refill. And we in South Dakota, in the Midwest, this is what our pride hinges on. We want to be able to to sustain ourselves. We want to be able to provide for ourselves, right? We want to be able to get in the tractor and fix our tractor ourselves and take it out to the field and combine 
all, all, all that field for ourselves, and we don't want to put that burden on somebody else, right? We, we go to work, and, and we think, you know, hey, I'm going to do my job to the best of my ability, and if someone tries to help me, I don't, I don't thank you for offering, but I don't need your help. If I take your help, then it might make me look a little bit weak, and then I may not get that promotion, so I'm good. I'm good with that. And this is a staple of, of, of stubborn, proud Midwesterners. I'm the same way. The thing I hate doing the most, okay, when I'm working on a project, is picking up my phone and calling somebody and saying, hey, I need you. <laughs> I need help, right? I don't, know, I don't know how to put this together, and I know you do. I need your help. I hate doing it. Do you know why? Because I'm a proud, stubborn Norwegian, where are my proud Norwegians at? Come on here, right? Thank you. We got one in the back. I thought there was more of us. That's weird. But, but that's the reality, right? Is that who we are? We have this I'm good mentality. I don't need your help. And that's what happened with Laodicea. They got to a place spiritually where they said to Jesus, I have the money. I have the car. I got the girl. I got the family. I'm good. Jesus, I don't, you know, I'll, I'll go to church. I bet you these people still went to church. They still read the letter, right? Maybe they even went to a life group here and there. Maybe they even served at their church and they did their due diligence. Maybe they got baptized when they were a baby and they think, you know what, I'm good. I, I, I'm good, I don't, I don't need that stuff. I've achieved my dream. I've achieved my goals. So Jesus, I don't need you. Here's, here's the reality. We don't say that to Jesus. We don't say, I don't, I don't need you, Jesus, but our lives do. Our lives communicate to Jesus, Jesus, we don't actually need you. We don't need your gospel anymore. We don't need your life, your death, your resurrection. Don't you see my success? I've made it. Don't you see the dreams that I've set when I was a young man? I'm starting to achieve those things. I'm moving up the ladder at my job. I'm having the family that I've always wanted. And yeah, there's been some bumps along the way. Thanks for getting me through those. But Jesus, I don't need you anymore. I got all my vacations planned for this summer. Jesus, I don't, I'll see you in the fall. All right, we're getting too personal here. That's what, I, that's what I'm good, that's what it means. So what's the remedy? What does Jesus do? He says in verse 18, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Here's what Jesus says to them. Come to me and I'm gonna give you gold. Take the things that you've worked your entire life for, the money that you've accumulated, and you come to me with that money and you invest it into me and then I'm gonna give you a gold that's refined by fire. He says, come to me with all your clothes, lay them down at my feet, and I'm gonna give you a white garment. Remember, they, these were the, 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 the high-end fashion experts and what is Jesus saying? Your clothes will not sustain you. Your clothes are what's distracting you. Come to me and I will clothe you. Come to me and I'm gonna rub an ointment on your eye, a, I, an ointment they were famous and known for. And Jesus is like rubbing it in their face. And he says, come to me and I'm gonna put ointment on your eyes so that you can actually see. They were lost in their success and their comfort. 
They had this I'm good mentality where they left Jesus behind. They were no longer intoxicated with his gospel and his person. And they moved on. And Jesus says, listen, you're in danger of being vomited out. Jesus goes buckwheat on these guys. He says, you make me vomit. You're the scum between my toes. Guys, that was supposed to be funny, okay? That was a little rascals quote. I know you know what the little rascals are, right? I mean, Buckwheat is one of the most adorable characters ever. I mean, that scene where he's reading that to Darla and she's just like getting angrier and angrier and she crushes the can, right? And Buckwheat's just like, <laughs> right? I mean, it's awesome. It's powerful. Jesus is going buckwheat on these people, okay? And what he tells them to do, I think is critical for us to understand. He says, put your stock in me. Put your success, your investments, all those things, put them in me. Be zealous and repent. Underline those two words, be zealous and repent. We know what repentance is, right? We teach on this really well. Repentance is when you're moving one way and your, your affection is set on something and then all of a sudden that changes and you do a 180 and now you're moving in a different direction, right? We know what repentance is. It's when you repent of something, I'm doing this wrong, I'm gonna change my ways, I'm gonna be a better person. That's what repentance is, okay? I'm gonna follow after Jesus. Jesus doesn't just come to the church and say, you need to repent. He comes to the church and he says, you need to be zealous, how many of you know someone that's struggled with an addiction, whether we, we think of, you know, whether it's alcohol, drugs, we're all addicts to a degree, right? We all have those things that we're like addicted to that we've put our ultimate in and that we're striving to see. Some of you, you're addicted to success. Some of you, you're addicted to your family. And you're putting all your stock in this thing and you're moving in a direction. And Jesus stops them in their tracks. He says, you are lost, you're blind, you're pitiable, you're wicked. He says all these things to him, and he says, repent, but be zealous. Here's the reality of the human heart. The human heart was made to attach itself to something or to someone. That's what zealous literally means. It's to follow passionately after something with dedication. It's to lay your life down for something. Some of you, right, you were zealous for your spouse, and so you did whatever you had to do in order to get him or her. Right, ladies, you put out those subtle things where you're just like, hey, I'm available, right? Guys, you see that girl and you're like, man, she's way out of my league. What do I gotta do to get her? And so you're willing to do whatever you want. Your heart is attached to that person and you're chasing after them, right? They've put their, they've put their hope and dreams in success. They've put, every, they're all in, they're zealous for their wealth, for their money, for their family, for the social status. Jesus says, repent, turn away. But don't just repent, be zealous. Attach your heart to something or someone else. Jesus is telling them, hey, you need to repent of your sin, but don't just find the next closest thing that's gonna fulfill you and attach your heart to that. Rather, put your hope and your dreams in me. There's this powerful there's this, I was reading an article last week. I was sharing with downtown. Uh, it's a story of, of uh, Tim Keller. He's literally, you hear me talk about this guy all the time. He's like one of my heroes of the faith, right? And, and Tim Keller was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, which is, does not have a high success rate, OK? 
okay? He's just this godly man, right? He was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, so he had that fear of death close to him, and it messed him up, right? He actually talks about it, but then he came out of it, right? They, 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 there was no pancreatic cancer, and he was doing a lot better. Then all of a sudden, it was probably a year, year and a half ago, uh, it came back, right? And he came very close to death. In fact, People were like, I don't know how much time this father of the faith has left with us, and so we need to absorb all the information uh, that we can. But he was interviewed by this magazine, and I want to read to you something that he said, because I think it, it's at the heart of what's wrong with Laodicea, but it shows us what the, di- or what it shows us what the, the cure is. He said this, being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer has helped Kathy, his wife, and I grow and we wouldn't want to go back to the way things were. I believe that God put something in my life, such as pancreatic cancer, that has caused me to grow like I've wanted to. We've been happier and closer in the season. He said this, this, this just messes me up. I've already experienced death and the resurrection. He said the death of dreams. He said, I probably won't be able to see my grandkids grow up. I want, I want you to let that sink in for just a moment. This man who has faithfully served God his whole life, life. He came, he he grappled with the reality that he's not going to, probably not going to see his grandkids grow up. And he said, you know what? I gave that dream. I gave it to God. Here's what Jesus knows that oftentimes we miss, that if we put our ultimate in our family, if we put our ultimate in our dreams and in our goals, if we listen to what culture teaches us about how the end goal of our life ultimately is to be happy, it's to achieve the American dream, if that's the thing that we're chasing after more than anything else, it's going to be a thing that will ultimately disappoint us. It's ultimately gonna let us down. And the truth that Tim Keller speaks in these these trying times for him is this, I had to give Jesus my dreams. You know what Jesus says in Matthew 10? This is the heart of the gospel right here. He says, if you don't, if you want to hold on to your father and mother, you are not worthy of following me. Your kids, if that's your ultimate, you're not worthy of following me. He who finds his life will lose it. And this is it right here. You ready for the gospel? But he who loses his life for my sake will gain it. You know what Jesus is doing in that moment? You know what he's doing? Laodicea right here, he's saying you've attached your heart to something that's not me, to something that's not Jesus. You need to repent of it. You need to turn. You need to attach yourself to me. And then all those things that I have given you, they'll be in the appropriate place and you will live a life that's fulfilled. It may not end in your happiness, as so many of the churches realized in their suffering, but it will end in your joy because you will have the one your heart is meant to have. Jesus is confronting the reality that their witness was compromised. They can't do the work that God has called them to because they're chasing after their own dreams and their own goals. What I love about Tim Keller is he said, I had to give that dream to God. And because I gave him that dream, I find joy. Because it means I have to trust in him. It means I need him more than anything else. It means I need him today. It means I need him tomorrow. Because tomorrow I'm going to want to see my grandkids. Tomorrow I'm going to want to see my kids, and I may not get that. But God, even if I don't, I trust you. Here's my heart. Here's my life. Here's my reality. Laodicea missed this, and so oftentimes we do too. 
See, the door of your heart is locked from the inside. Revelations 3.20 says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come unto him and I will eat with him and he with me. Jesus uses this picture of him standing in a door. It's a door we all know. For some of you, this may be the verse that actually caused you to think about faith and say, you know what? I wanna open the door of my heart to Jesus. Here's the reality. Remember Philadelphia? The, the church that did everything right, what happens with them? Jesus comes to them, he says, I'm gonna open a door for you that nobody can shut. I'm gonna open a door that's gonna lead to opportunity. I'm gonna open a door that's gonna lead to, to you engaging with me more in a fuller way. It's the door that will bring the ultimate peace that you are seeking after. I, Jesus, am gonna open that door for you. He comes to Laodicea and what happens? Jesus is kicked to the curb. Jesus is outside. They've locked the door from the inside. They've said, Jesus, we no longer need you. You're out there. We're in here. Jesus is knocking on a door saying, let me back in and I will come into you and we will dine together. This is what Jesus does. Here's what Jesus does that is so, it's just mind-blowing to me. When I read this, I almost went to tears. You know what Jesus does? This is, how he, this is the end of the road for Jesus. He has nothing good to say about the church, but his warning is a picture of, of him knocking on a door to our heart. There's a scholar named G.K. Beale. He has a book that's about this thick, where it's, just, it's literally just commentary in the book of Revelation. The dude is a brain. He's a nerd. He's the nerdiest of nerds. Him and other scholars, you know what they say Jesus does here? Jesus takes us. He takes an unfaithful church, a church whose heart has wandered from him, whose witness has been compromised. And he takes us back to a book that is all about love. You know what this is a quote from? Song of Solomon, chapter five, verse two. Jesus literally takes us to the most sensual, provocative, erotic book in the entire Bible. In fact, I'm gonna to read to you a portion of it, but I can't read all of it because I'm, there's like kids sitting in the room and it would be inappropriate, right? Jesus takes us back to a story of two lovers. Let's go to the scriptures. Song of Solomon 5 verse two. This is a picture of a, of a woman, the Shulamite, who's in her room. She says this, I slept, but my heart was awake, a sound my beloved is knocking. And he said, open to me, my love, my dove, my beloved. My beloved put his hand on the latch and my heart was thrilled within me. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave me no answer. I sought him and the watchmen found me. They beat me, they bruised me. They took away my veil. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you would tell him I am sick with love. To a church that has lost the romantic flair of relationship with Christ, he sends them to a book that Jewish men who are 29 can't even read. He paints this picture. He uses, he uses a scripture of a man who comes to his lover's door, a man who has his heart and affections set on her. He knocks on the door and what I didn't read is that she takes her time in getting up. 
She says, oh, I'm not ready to get up. And so because I'm not prepared, I'm not going to go to the door and open it to my lover so he can come in. And so she takes her time getting things ready. She takes her time uh, getting her hair done and getting the right clothes on and looking the right way. And then when she goes to the door, her lover, the one that she held on to every word back then, her lover was gone. And we see a woman whose heart is zealous for her lover. She goes around town, have you seen my beloved? No, she goes and even asks people, she's so desperate, she asks the wrong people and they say, no, I haven't seen your lover, but I'm gonna abuse you, I'm gonna steal from you, I'm gonna rob from you. But she still says, I am sick with love. In the end of the story, right, spoiler alert, she finds him and she's completely satisfied in her beloved. This is what Jesus points us to. A steamy story of two lovers where one is on the outside, they've been locked out and they're knocking on the door waiting for someone to open. Here's the reality. This is what Jesus is saying to them. I'm knocking on the door, but I'm not gonna knock forever. But this time, if you refuse to open, this time you won't find me. This is the reality of Laodicea. This is the sin that you and I, I think face the most here in North America. We get married to our comfort. We love, we love ourselves more than we love Christ. We love our way more than his way. And Jesus is coming to us and he's saying, repent of your sin. Be zealous for the things of God. The door of your heart is locked from the inside. And he's knocking on that door this morning. If you've walked away from Christ, will you open that door? See, here's the reality. Here's how it works out in our life. I shared this with first service. I'm gonna make this really quick because I wanna wrap up. But I was preparing for this message and I thought of two examples. I wanted to think of a bad one and a good one. How does this work out in our life? And I thought of uh, the, the girls I went to school with, right? And how they used faith for their own selfish gain, right? They would do these devos and they'd have their Bible open, right? And they'd have their hand with no ring on it, right? You guys know what I'm getting at here? Song of Solomon is in the backdrop and they're like, just doing devos with my man Jesus, right? What would they really want? They would want some dude to be on Facebook to see that and be like, man, she is, that's some, that's some hot spirituality right there, right? I wanna get with that lady. You know, I want, I want her to be my bride, right? They in their pride were putting themselves out there. They're, they're doing those subtle techniques, right, to, to, to kind of, you know, rope in the guys and, 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 and so they were using the Lord for their own selfish gain. And I remember, I remember being in the marketplace thinking of this story and this analogy. And then I thought, man, I gotta have a good one. And so what I did is I said, hey, you know, I, when I was in college too. And I had a mentor, his name was Lanny Hubbard. He was like the man, right? I loved him. I wanted to be like him. And so I was like, dude, uh, I, wanna be, I wanna be your sheep. Like, would you just tell me what to do? I'll do it. I'll, I'll, I'll iron your clothes. I'll shine your shoes, right? I'll, I'll grade your papers. I don't care. I just wanna be around you, Right? And he said, yes, and everybody knew it, but I never lorded it over them. I, I, I was humble about it. I was like, you know, I, I got this guy who I'm going to be like one day, but I, I'm not, I'm a humble person. I'm not going to do that. Here's what I realized. While I was preparing for this message, while I was reading through the church of Laodicea, when I was reading about the sins that they had made and how their pride got in the way and they got comfortable with their comfort. 
They got comfortable with with their success. What I realized is that the sin of pride had crept into my own life. I was there, man. I was in the zone. The Lord was speaking. I I felt so holy and righteous. And I was like, man, things are going so well. And the first example I think of is tear somebody else down and build myself up. I'm not like those people over there, those desperate women in college, right? They're married now, so joke's on me, okay, right? But that's what we do. That's how pride works. The door's locked from the inside. We we think that we're better than other people. And so what we do is we do the exact same thing culture does. And we say, you're over there and I'm over here. I have this standard right here. And if you don't meet that standard or expectation, you're one of those people. I'm going to pray for you because I'm a good Christian person. And I go to church every week because I'm a good Christian person, but that person over there, they don't. Guys, we need to get together and we need to pray for them because they're not like us. And what we do inside of faith is we create a hierarchy of people just like culture does, the have and the haves nots. And we separate ourselves from everybody else. That is something that is despicable to God. When I had that realization, I thought I was being so spiritual. I thought I was being so good. I realized that is at the core of my heart. That's the pride that works itself out. My little girl's gonna be a kindergartner this year. Guess what? We held her back for a year. You know what the first thing is I thought of? Ooh, man, she's gonna be a good athlete. She's got a year ahead of everybody else, right? I want those things that benefit me. I want those things that benefit my family. I want those things that that benefit my community. And when I do that, you know what I'm doing? I'm separating myself from everybody else and I'm saying, unless you're a part of my family, unless you're a part of uh, my circle, unless you're a part of my community, then you're one of those people. And the church is the one area in society where there's to be none of that. There's no him, her, or the other thing. There's just people who have, been, who, have been, uh, given, who have given themselves to Jesus and they're following after him. When we learn to identify the pride in our heart, we start becoming warmer. We start becoming colder. We start becoming something that people can come to and say, you know what, I wanna be around you because you don't put me on the outside. You don't see me the way everybody else sees me and I can find healing in your words. I can find healing in your company. There's something life-giving about the water that you provide to me. I wanna be around you. Laodicea is about to get spit out, but there's still hope. Why? Because there's a lover banging on the door saying, will you let me in? Time is running out. Jesus is asking us today, are we becoming Laodicea? Are we becoming comfortable with our comfort? Are we living in such a way to where we have people over here who maybe are sinners that we've separated ourselves from because of our own pride? Or are we a people who realize the gospel is the most intoxicating thing we could ever experience because in it we see a God who came down, became like one of us, and you know what he did? You know who's standing at the door of your heart? A man who went to the door of death. At the end of your road, there's gonna be a door, and if you don't put your faith in Jesus, that door is gonna be open, and it's utter darkness. It's separation from God. It's hell. That's what awaits every single one of us. 
And Jesus went to that door, our beloved went to that door and he stepped through so that we wouldn't have to. He stepped through and took our sin on his shoulders so that one day when we come to that doorway of death, we can put our faith in Jesus, knowing he's overcome our sins, knowing that I don't have to be good enough, knowing that I'm not good, knowing that I'm not complete, that my dreams are not sufficient to save me, but only his is. When you realize that that is the person who's knocking on the door of your heart, there's something in your heart that jumps up because you realize, I have to have you. You're like a drug I can't get past. You're like like a relationship that I want to be around all of the time. Jesus, that's who you are. That's what the gospel is meant to inspire in our hearts. Are you living an inspired life this morning? Do you realize the man who walked through the door of death now stands at the door of your heart knocking, saying, I want to come in and I want to eat with you. I have every reason to reject you, but I'm going to eat with you because I love you and I care for you. Do you know that Jesus this morning? If you don't, mark that on a connection card, scan the QR code, let us know that you committed to following Christ for the first time or that you're renewing your commitment to him. Let him transform you. Let him change you. Let him identify the pride that's in our heart that will slowly cause us to become a Laodicea, become lukewarm in our faith. This is the Jesus we follow. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that sometimes there's words that are encouraging, that uplift us, that inspire us, and sometimes there's words that are difficult and they're hard to hear. Lord, this morning, would you use the hard words you shared with Laodicea to convict us and to transform us and to change us, Lord, that we wouldn't be like Darla crushing the can in frustration and anger, Lord, that we wouldn't be a church that says, no, I'm good. I don't need you, Jesus. I don't need to make that change in my life. I don't need to sacrifice that thing that I've been holding on to. I don't need to give you my dreams, Lord. Would we be a church that is real and authentic, that we would say, Jesus, we need you more now than we did back then. The more I know, the more I need. Lord, help us. Help us to need you. Help us to be intoxicated by your gospel. Lord, don't let us forget. Don't let us forget your life, your death, your resurrection. Lord, let us be reminded this morning, we pray in your name. In your name, amen.